There's no place quite like Russia, they say. They say everything over there is just a little bit different than the rest of the world. And they might just be right. Welcome back to the swamp, my friends, and welcome if you're new. Today I'm going to be sharing some creepy and allegedly true horror stories from the country of Russia. If you have a story that you'd like to share in a future episode, whether it's from another country, the United States, or just you slapping up Bigfoot, be sure to submit it at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. I would love to share your story with everyone here in the swamp. It's officially time to kickstart your holiday shopping, but there's no cause for panic. Uncommon Goods is here to make your holiday shopping stress-free by scouring the globe for the most remarkable and truly unique gifts for everyone on your list. Whether you're shopping for mom, dad, teenagers, in-laws, or your best friends, Uncommon Goods knows exactly what you want. My family loves to spend our time outdoors, so the portable campfire that they have is amazing. We can use it for marshmallows, roasting some weenies, and just having a good time. When you shop at Uncommon Goods, you're supporting artists and small independent businesses. These fine products are made in small batches and are often made by hand. So shop now before they sell out this holiday season. Uncommon Goods looks for products that are high quality, unique, and often handmade in the U.S. From art and jewelry to kitchen, home, and bar, Uncommon Goods has something for everyone. Not the same lackluster gifts you can find just anywhere. And with every purchase you make at Uncommon Goods, they give $1 back to a nonprofit charity of your choice. They've donated more than $2.5 million to date. So, what are you waiting for? Join me and many others in the swamp today. Get 15% off your next gift. Go to uncommongoods.com slash swamped. That's uncommongoods.com slash swamped for 15% off. Don't miss out on this limited time offer. Uncommon Goods, we're all out of the ordinary. My Memories from Russia by Weed Piercer 420 for context, I was born in Moscow, Russia, and moved to the United States at nine years old. The apartment I lived in was creepy and old, very Soviet Union. Now the apartments are a bit different from the way they are in the United States. They are about five plus stories high and wide. A security code unique to each complex can access the apartment. This was a bad part of town, a lot of bad things happened. A great deal of traumatic things went down in my childhood, but this one has to be one of the ones that scarred me the most. It was almost a wake-up call for my parents to move. It was a typical day. I was eight years old and having some fun with my childhood friends. Little did I know, my friends and I were playing tag when suddenly I heard someone scream, Help me! from one of the apartment buildings. I stopped dead in my tracks. Did you help me? Another scream cut me off. My friends and I looked at each other. I don't think at this point we were scared yet. This was a bad part of Russia. And again, many bad things happened in this complex. I just thought it was another drunk woman going crazy. I continued playing with my friends. Not even a minute later, I heard a bloody scream. All of my friends looked at each other with this bewildered look in their eyes. A blonde woman ran out of my apartment building. A white dress stained with blood. The first thing I saw was her face, pure with terror and crying. 
I noticed she was clenching her stomach. I looked down and I really wish I hadn't. There was a kitchen knife in her stomach. Her white dress was stained with blood dripping down it. I was so focused on the blade that I didn't even notice a tall-haired man running out of the building, chasing the woman. By now, all of the kids were standing there in shock, watching the guy chase the bloody woman. She wasn't very fast, considering she had a knife in her stomach. He caught up to her pretty quickly. He punched her. She fell to the ground, and the man took the knife out of her stomach and stabbed her again and again as she lay there unconscious from the punch. As fast as he came, he left. He just got up and ran away as if he didn't just murder someone. At this moment, I was stunned in silence. My eyes cannot get off the dead woman. It felt like I was just stuck there. I was staring at her dead, empty eyes staring at the sky. I ran away crying to my mom. My mom made me stay inside for the rest of the day, and I watched out the fifth-story window as more and more cop cars and ambulances entered my block. This experience, of course, traumatized me. I wasn't harmed in this physically, but mentally it was like a death sentence. I am still holding on to the guilt that I didn't do anything. Of course, I was just a child, small, frail, feeble, and I know that now, but I just feel like there was something I could have done to prevent this somehow. I later found out on the news this was a domestic violence case. The perpetrator was her husband. He was caught and he is now spending the rest of his life behind bars. Apparently, he was a very bad alcoholic. That day, he went off his hooks. The woman's first scream was from him hitting her, and she tried to fight back. He grabbed a knife and managed to stab her. She got out of the apartment, ran, and then, obviously, we know the rest at this point. A Family of Killers a true crime story. Forty-six-year-old Anissa and her forty-five-year-old husband Roman Podkapeyev lived in a very comfortable life. Roman earned a generous wage as a dentist in the southern Russian region of Stavropol, while Anissa held down a full-time job as a nursery school teacher. Their combined income was considerably higher than most Russian households, and they ensured their 13-year-old daughter Victoria wanted nothing. On the surface, they seemed as normal and as well-adjusted as any other family and often went on camping trips to nearby areas of Rostov. Yet, while on these seemingly wholesome family outings, something dark and primal was driving the trio. Along with two of their in-laws, they committed some of the most vile acts a human is absolutely capable of doing. On February 17, 2008, in Oxe, a small town in the greater Rostov region, Anissa, Roman, and Victoria pulled up outside the home of Mikhail Z, head of the Information Security Department of the State Drug Control Service. With all the efficiency of a military raiding party, the family smashed their way into the house quickly incapacitating Mikhail and his wife with shots from firearms they had concealed in their vehicle. Once they were downed and incapable of defending themselves, the family took their time butchering the couple with knives they carried, making sure that Mikhail was forced to watch as they carved up his beloved wife before finally finishing him off. The family then went about collecting trophies from the house, items that would serve as mementos of their first hunt together including clothing items and a television remote. 
The trio believed that such a horrendous act of violence might sate their desire to hunt and kill, and that afterward they could return to being pillars of their small Russian community. But the raid only fueled a bloodlust that would lead them to claim many more victims. It actually only took a couple of months before the family was baying for blood again. So once more, they got on the road to Rostov for another one of their supposed camping trips, wink wink. On July 17, 2008, Alexei S. and Julia V. traveled on a federal highway through the Oxay district. It was a routine drive for them, right up until bullets began to smash through the windscreen of their vehicle. Alexei was killed almost instantly, and Julia was seriously wounded when their car veered off the highway and crashed into a barrier. All Julia could do was watch while dazed and bleeding, as Roman, Anissa, and Victoria approached the car, wrenched open the doors, and took yet more trophies in the form of a purse, a driver's license, and a passport. They wanted something to remember what their victims looked like, but in their haste to flee the scene, fearful that other motorists would catch them in the act, they neglected to finish Julia off. She was one of the first few survivors of the murderous clan. Somehow, the Podkapaya family would wait an entire year before they felt the inclination to strike again. On July 8, 2009, Paratrooper Lieutenant Colonel Dmitry C. was sitting in a parked car on the shoulder of a stretch of highway with his wife, their 11-year-old daughter, and 7-year-old son. They were returning from a family holiday and had stopped briefly to rest before continuing their journey. Dmitry was awoken by a fearful cry from his wife. His eyes opened wide to see Anissa approaching their car. She was shouldering a very powerful semi-automatic shotgun and pointed the barrel directly at the car's windscreen. Dimitri was no stranger to violence and immediately reacted, trying to gun the car's engine and get his family the hell out of there. But no one can move faster than a bullet, and Anissa pulled the trigger over and over again. Scores of shotgun pellets ripped through the glass and tore through Dimitri's body as well as that of his small son and wife. 11-year-old Veronica was the only one left alive. She had been sat behind her father, and his body had absorbed most of the shotgun's blast, leaving her with only scrapes and nicks from ricochets and flying glass. But she was also completely and utterly shell-shocked by the sudden eruption of violence. She barely fought back as Roman and Victoria dragged her from the back seat, plunging a knife into her almost 40 times to extinguish her young life. Once the entire Chidaka family was dead at the roadside, the Podkapayevs looted their belongings, stealing an expensive laptop, a hairdryer, and a digital camera. It should be noted that they happened to cross almost $1,500 worth of gold jewelry in the victim's luggage, but neglected to take it. So clearly, the family was killing for sport rather than any sort of financial gain. As we did mention, they were doing pretty well. This is entirely at odds with the Russian media's description of them as quote-unquote bandits. As they were not robbers who just happened to kill to make their task more accessible, they were murderous psychopaths killing for the sake of killing. The fact that Dmitry Chitikov was a high-ranking officer in Russia's elite VDV paratroopers made this particular set of murders front-page news all over Russia, and the authorities were desperate to find the perpetrator quickly. This led to a completely innocent man named Alexei Serenko being falsely accused and convicted for the murders. 
which ended up with him spending two years in prison. The only evidence levied against him was that the hastily gathered results of the ballistic amb the only actual evidence levied against him was the hastily gathered results of the ballistic examination as the owner of a similar kind of semiotic shotgun, Alexei was erroneously branded as the Chetikov's murderer. Alexei was also accused of killing three other people in the same area based on the same ballistics evidence. Still, after further examination, he was cleared and released from prison with the Russian government only offering meager compensation. The following year, the Potokopaya family planned another bloody attack. And this seems to be the first that was motivated by actual financial gain. Anissa was well aware that the family of her goddaughter had several high-tech firearms, as well as a considerable amount of cash, both of which could be used to carry on their campaign of a rapacious terror. Now, the family drove out to the home of their respective victims under the cover of darkness, as they do, lying in wait for them to come home from eating dinner at a nearby restaurant. Yet, the only two people to return, after quite a few hours, were the family's two daughters, one of whom was just 12 years old. Both girls were grabbed up, held down, and tortured to force them to reveal the location of the weapons and the cash. One of the girls was said to have their eyeballs gouged out before she finally broke and told them where the money could be located. After somehow finding it in herself to kill her goddaughter, Anissa then led her family on a murderous rampage that lasted four more long years. The killings mainly consisted of home invasions, much in the same style as the first set of killings that the family committed. But during that time frame, the Potokopayevs also developed a new type of attack, one in which they would ambush those who responded to burglar alarms that they had deliberately set off. On September 19, 2012, the family killed two employees of a private security company who responded to alarms going off at a local dental clinic. The Potokopayevs then stole the security guard's firearms, which included a Kalashnikov assault rifle and two semi-automatic rifles and two semi-automatic pistols, all of which were used to replenish their arsenal of weaponry. Then, on April 8, 2013, the family unloaded hundreds of rounds of ammunition into the car of a grocery store employee responding to alarms that they had set off at the store. Miraculously, only one of the men died, with the driver somehow surviving the vicious attack that should have quickly snuffed him out. After five years of intermittent killing and looting, it seemed the Potokopayevs were unstoppable with their slaughter. But on September 8, 2013, unsatisfied with shooting a husband and wife couple who were out on a stroll in the Oxe countryside, Roman and his daughter Victoria decided they would rob the home of a former military officer. They didn't find any cash in the residence, so they decided to steal candles and chicken drumsticks, apparently unwilling to leave empty-handed. The father-daughter hit squad fled on a scooter they had previously stolen that day, but were soon pulled over by a police officer named Ivan S. Ivan was actually investigating the shootings that the Potokopayevs had been a part of earlier that day and demanded to see some identification from the pair. Instead of showing identification, of course, Roman pulled out a pistol and executed the officer right there at the roadside. What followed was a running gun battle that ended up with Roman being shot dead and Victoria arrested. At the same time, Anissa was later taken into custody while guarding a massive cache of stolen weaponry, which included silencers, grenades, and dozens of ammunition cases. 
Police also found dozens of items belonging to slain victims in the weapon's cache, proving the Potikapayevs were responsible for multiple murders. During the interrogation that followed, Anissa told the investigating homicide detective that she hated police and lamented that her family was not able to kill more of them during their murder spree. A shocking revelation also brought to light that the Potikapayevs were being assisted by Anissa's sister and brother-in-law, who happened to be a former policeman. She was connected with law enforcement. The brother-in-law could pass on the inside information regarding police operations and movements, which enabled them to escape justice for quite some time. But what would drive a former nursery school teacher, capable of such nurturing instincts, to describe herself as a gangster by nature? What could possess her to view herself as something of a hero for having targeted military men and police officers? She was undoubtedly worshipped as one of a handful of anonymous sadists would do, but she was never much more than a micro-celebrity in that sense. Not far from the site of the Chittikov murders, police officers found three homemade knives, three of which had written phrases on them, to my beloved bandit girl and to my beloved Amazon, a reference to the warrior women of legend. It's clear that some are driven to violence and thievery out of desire to simply survive. But what's horrifying about the case of the Potikapaya family is that they chose to kill because of some weird, hideous, evil desire to dominate and destroy. Because hunting, ambushing, and killing human beings was what thrilled them more than anything else. They didn't need the money. What they needed was the blood. Small Town European Horror by Anonymous I'm a big fan of horror stories. There's nothing better than sitting home on a cold, rainy day listening to allegedly true horror stories wrapped tight in a giant blanket pretending to be a human burrito. But listening to these stories on Swamp Dweller's show and experiencing them is a road I never wish to cross again. I, myself, am an 18-year-old dude from a small country in Europe. I have a good body build from all those years in the gym and an excess amount of protein. I have lived my life in the biggest cities in my country, but I have never shied away from going to the countryside to get a bit of that countryman life. So, in the summer of 2019, I and two of my friends, Martin and a guy everybody called Wolf, decided to go binge drinking in a log cabin that was located some 35 miles from the nearest city. It doesn't seem that far, but none of us had driver's licenses at the time. So, at about 7 p.m., we hopped on a train and went to the woods. From where we had to walk about three miles to the glorious two-story log cabin. Inside, on the ground floor, there was a kitchen and a bedroom Upstairs, on the second floor, there was a small hallway, which led to another bedroom with separate beds. I and Wolf established our presence in the second floor bedroom, and Martin settled down in the ground floor bedroom, like the little loner he is. There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. We were prepping food and drinks, listening to music, never minding that we were in the middle of the woods, miles away from the nearest civilization, but we had lots of drinks and snacks. So, what else would we need, am I right? About a half a mile away from the cabin, there was this massive pond. 
After a couple of beers, we went there, thinking we could go for a swim. But seeing the unnaturally dark water and a little forest of reeds, we decided that it probably was not worth getting rashes from the dirty water or cutting our legs on whatever litter might be roaming on the bottom, and we made our way back to the cabin. The evening was extraordinarily beautiful and peaceful. The red and purple sky was stunning, accompanied by the giant bonfire we made for the night full of marshmallow roasting and drinking. When the nighttime came, we were quick to drink, and it was about 1am. We were all in a good state of drunkenness, some more than others because Martin was already passed out in his folding chair. Wolf and I carried him to his room and put him in his bed, leaving all the doors wide open. Everything outside was pitch black, and our smart asses didn't bring a flashlight. But with one friend sleeping and us getting bored, we decided to walk back to that pond we went to previously and make a small campfire. But as we got near the trail that leads to the woods, we heard leaves crunching and twigs snapping, like somebody was quickly walking just behind the trees about 30 feet in front of us. We quickly stopped. Wolf whispered, Hey, I think someone's there. It can't be. It's a private territory. Must be the wind or something, I said. Being quite drunk and actively brave, I loudly shouted, If there's someone there, put your freaking hands up in the air. Yeah, very mature, I know. But then, the sound stopped. It was as if whatever was making those sounds was never even there. Not being able to see because of the darkness, we got a bit creeped out and started to walk back towards the cabin, talking about how funny it would be if somebody lifted their hands in the air after saying that. But what I heard then made my heart sink. From inside of the cabin, we heard an ear-piercing scream. It was Martin. We rushed to the entrance of the cabin. Then we saw it. A pale, gray-skinned humanoid creature. It was probably about five feet tall with disproportionately long arms and webbed fingers. Its legs were bent backwards and were super skinny. The face had two giant black eyes and a mouth that was open, showing a row of long, pointy teeth. The creature was holding Martin's leg while he was screaming inhumanly loud. I never thought a human could produce such a high-pitched scream. The thing had to run past us at some point and get out of the cabin. So I was scared and wanted to pee myself. We had to somehow get past this thing to get inside. Thinking quickly, we picked the biggest pieces of firewood and started throwing it at the creature. We both missed, but luckily it let go of Martin's leg and jumped back into the forest. We quickly dragged Martin back inside, closed all of the doors and windows, locking ourselves in the second floor bedroom, backs pressed against the door. Martin's leg was pretty badly scratched. We poured vodka on the wound and DIY bandaged his leg. The rest of the night we heard scratching at the entrance and the windows. We were afraid it would break the windows and get inside, but to our luck, it never did. At one point, the scratching stopped so Wolf went to the window and checked if it was gone, but to his horror, it was standing outside the window, looking straight at him. When the sun came up, we checked through all the windows for the creature. It looked like it was gone. We had to get out of the woods. After a couple of hours of being absolute scared out of our mind, we finally grew a pair and started running as fast as we could. 
The journey to the train station was the longest of my entire life. I was afraid to see that creature again, but we managed to get home safe. We've never told anybody what we saw. Nobody believed us. I never really believed in those scary stories that I used to listen to either. The creature was similar looking to the Dover Demon, but not quite exactly. I still do not know why the creature didn't attack me and Wolf. Maybe it saw Martin as easy prey while he was in his drunken state, but I'm happy it all ended safely. I think the creature came from that pond. Those webbed hands indicate that the creature is semi-aquatic, so whether I'm right or wrong, I'm super glad that we didn't go for a swim there. It could have ended so much worse if it had. Family Trip Gone Horribly Wrong by Anonymous I went on vacation in Northern Europe with my grandfather as he had taken people there before. When I left the States, I did some research on the mythicism of the people. A generous preponderance of it was concerning trolls, and so I did an expansive investigation touching on the topic of trolls. I listened to the podcast of Swamp Dweller and others. Anyway, my grandfather was remarkably kind, and when I requested to investigate Troller's Gill, he granted it without equivocation. We had countless fun experiences while in the United Kingdom. Resting in peace, Grandpa. Anyhow, on the route to Apple Treewick, we stopped at Tesco Petrol Station. We convened a couple of quite charming chaps there one appearing to be somewhere in their mid-thirties, and the other looking somewhere in his sixties. The more youthful fellow had ginger hair and was wearing a corduroy parka. The mature individual possessed a full head of lustrous silver hair and had an extremely crisp Norwegian accent. They inquired where we were going. I simply replied, Troller's Gill. The more adult one shifted to the ginger and his peepers went wide. The redhead discerned that he was surprised that we would be going there, and his eyes went wide. The pair then both stared at me and my grandpa with shock. The old guy said something about a dog beast in German, and the other looked to my grandfather and declared, Troller's gill is shamed for the devil dog brute. Anyone who beholds him perishes shortly after. We both presumed he was ribbing, and I understand it seems cliché, but I was honestly sort of creeped out. But I downed a strawberry Miranda in the truck, which set me in a kindred spirit. Once we arrived, I spontaneously sensed an uncomfortable, eerie presence. The presence of an omnipotent presence. We advanced along the path, and I began to overhear some echoing, clanging clamors up ahead. We continued moving along and hiked up to the summit of a large hill. We sat there and let dew soak into the rear of our trousers and snacked on granola, taking occasional swigs of our Red Bull. We took in the view of the Grand Chasm, and the fragrance of moist earth, moss, and fungi. We inhaled with contentment. The light, barely lucid fog sent along with the essence of stone and cold rain. The tempestuous, storm clouds refined the sunlight of the setting day star through themselves, tinting the cumulus bodies of deep, brilliant azure. My sagacious grandfather understood and discerned this to be the mark of dusk and clarified to me that it was growing late. We did not possess any watches amidst us, 
or any device concerning time for that matter. We had left them behind in the truck as a way to get away from those things. We coveted the lavish impact of this sight I had been so eager to experience. We just hunkered down there for a few more moments. We both grasped the truth that we ought to leave shortly, but we both wordlessly chose to relax there for just a few more minutes. My stare trailed up from the crevice up to the elegant sky. As I was mounting up the resolution to indicate that we had to get on our way, my prepubescent brain did not want to leave. As I transcribed this, I realized that it presumably had to do with the pubescence and more of the repugnant entity toying around amidst my subconsciousness. While we irrevocably got up and started preparing to leave, we both heard what sounded like a howling. We both gazed down into the crevice and then overheard a hushed growl much closer to our position. I peered into the mysterious chasm, the surging, writhing umbra taunting me, spurring my hormone-ridden cerebrum. I was frozen in terror. I underwent profound coercion to attend my grandfather, and the moment I did, he cried out in fear. He pointed down to the gorge, and I looked downhill. I didn't detect anything, yet still, the petty child within me was even more panicked as I observed my tough old grandpa getting that frightened, and not being there for him, nearly simultaneously, my grandpa and I bolted, and at that instant, it seemed like he was running quicker than me. As we ran along the trail, the clinking and clanking accompanied us at a comfortable pace, almost like the beast was tantalizing us. Now, tears began streaming down my face, seemingly burning my cheeks. I glanced at my grandpa, and he glanced at me. We were both scared out of our wits. We made it to the security of our truck. My soft weeping drastically converted into heavy sobbing. Once I was done with my tearful sitting, the flesh below my eyes was stinging so sorely that I felt like a weeping anew. According to my grandfather, there were amazingly extrinsic tear streaks under my eyes, a dull maroon edge on a formless path, the body of the line paler than my skin hue. When I spoke to him regarding our encounter, I inquired about what he was pointing at in the gloomy chasm. He told me these exact words and I quote, a dark furred wolf, as heavy as a bear, with tusk like a hog and fangs like a viper. His eyes, his eyes were broad saucers, charged with fire, and his embers stung me. As he uttered this description to me, it was almost idyllic. For some reason, his words had an immeasurable effect on me. I don't have a photogenic memory but for some reason I can recite the complete bit off the top of my head every single time, with no consideration or hesitation. Like the place had a lasting mark on me. I might go back there someday. I can't grasp what I will do. There were only two material things I took home with me from that monster, but you surely couldn't label it as evidence. A tear in my beloved sweater. Now, I normally go with the flow, but for some reason, it made my heart stop. I suddenly broke into a cold sweat. I originally noticed it when I was on the way back. I was tensely fiddling with the finger breath of my attire. It was dark at this point, and I was doing everything I could to hold my gaze away from the ditches on the side of the road. My imagination was waiting for me there, with a knife behind its back. I sensed something burning me, 
and I tore my hand away from the sweater. I noticed a tear, and I somehow associated it that it was ripped with teeth. Not hominid teeth, but something sharper. My grandfather didn't discern my pain. It was dark, and he was concentrating on more significant matters like driving. The other item was driven into the sole of my shoe, a rusted black link from a chain. I don't understand the importance of this article, but I believe there is something peculiar concerning it. Thank you, Swamp, for sharing my story if you do. Thanks for listening to these creepy and allegedly true Russian and European horror stories that'll freak you out tonight. If you enjoyed these stories, please be sure to punch that like button as it helps me out a ton. The more likes this episode gets, the more YouTube promotes it to fresh new eyes, and episodes like this typically don't do that well. So, if you're feeling generous, definitely hit that like button, maybe leave me a comment down below to help me out in that good old algorithm, and I would be very, very appreciative. Thank you guys, as always, for supporting the swamp the way you do. I really couldn't do this on a daily basis without you guys. If you have a story that you'd like to share in a future episode, whether it's an out-of-country story or just something in general from the woods, be sure to submit that at swampdweller.net or the email you can find in the description down below. I would love to share your story with everyone here in the swamp, and stories like yours to help keep these shows going on a daily basis. If you're on the go but don't have YouTube Premium, but still want to download and listen to your favorite Swamp Dweller scary stories no matter where you are, absolutely free, you can do so on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and pretty much everywhere else you find your favorite podcast online. If you guys made it all the way to the end, I'd love to know in the comments what story was your favorite. Be sure to comment that code word, backflipping bear, to confuse anybody who didn't make it to the end. The funniest comment will be pinned at the top, per usual. I'll see you all soon with another creepy episode. Don't forget to subscribe if you're new, turn on notifications, smash that like button, join me over on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, all the good places, and I'll see you soon with another creepy episode.